0: All right. Shaking the sillies out. Here we shaking the sillies out.
1: I think they tell kids to do that when they like get overexcited.
0: Yeah. Shaking <laughs> is itself inherently a little silly. So that feels weird to me.
1: I think it's okay to be a little silly talking about 2024 polling personally, but.
0: That's true. <laughs> this can be a silly conversation too.
2: Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Pollsters are already asking Americans about who they want to run for president in 2024. In particular, whether they want another matchup between President Biden and former President Trump. Usually, I think we'd probably say that it's much too early to dive into all of that, except the situation is pretty unique. There isn't an overwhelming consensus among Democratic voters that President Biden should run again, or that he'd be their best shot at keeping the White House if he did. Meanwhile, former President Trump appears to be building a shadow campaign for president and has sizable support from his party. So we're gonna ask what all of this polling about 2024 actually tells us, and ask how we should think about the prospects of Biden and Trump running again. We also have a poll to discuss that we actually conducted here at 538. It pertains to a very polarizing topic, that is when the seasons begin. So, here with me to
0: discuss our managing editor, Micah Cohen. Hey, Micah. Hey, Galen. Thank you for going to me first today. I normally don't, don't get the first introduction. You know, when the mood strikes. Um, <laughs> how was your Thanksgiving? It was wonderful. I am visiting with my in laws, which is always a treat. So, I'm having a great time. Good to hear. Also with us is politics
2: editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah.
3: Hey, Galen. Hey, y'all.
2: How was your Thanksgiving?
3: Good, good. It came early this year. We uh, we cooked the feast on Wednesday, so...
2: Shaking it up double a little. Bit. The,
1: double the fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and also with us is senior writer and legal reporter, Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia, how was your Thanksgiving?
1: It was nice. We had two sets of family come up, so we did a meal on Thursday night and on Friday night, which was a lot of food, but it was all good. No turkey, though. We keep kosher, so we have to decide if we're going to do dairy or meat and... I can't say goodbye to the butter mashed potatoes. They're too delicious.
2: All right. Fern. I mean, how about tofurkey? No.
0: Galen. <laughs> did, did anybody have a good family fight? I've been trying to find some good family fight stories. My family didn't
2: fight really at all. At the table, we had we were about 15 people. Not at the table, not really sitting around, not during desserts, but we went for a walk after we had eaten and I don't know, two thirds of the way through the walk, my aunt was like, so who wants to talk about the Kyle Rittenhouse trial? And my cousins (laughs) were like, they had all these opinions. I mean, she like, you know, obviously grinning knew exactly what she was doing. And I was kind of surprised to hear that my cousins had so many different opinions about the trial. They're in high school and some of them are in college, but they had all kinds of opinions. And apparently they've been talking about it in their current events class in high school and so on and so forth. So that was kind of interesting. It was mostly just listening to teenagers and
0: young 20 something year olds talk about it. Young people engaged in current events. We love that here at Five Thirty Eight.
1: The closest thing to a fight that happened was when my dad started grilling my 14-year-old siblings about figures from the 80s and 90s and asking them if they knew who people were. And for some reason, he started with Linda Tripp. Shockingly, the youth of today do not know who Linda Tripp is. And my dad found that really shocking. And I just was like, come on,
2: that's niche knowledge. Even after the new biopic, whatever you want to call it, with Beanie Feldstein? I know. Yeah,
1: I don't know what they're doing. It's If it's not on TikTok, then it doesn't exist. Someone make TikToks about Linda Tripp. Come on.
2: <gasps> Wait. Oh, my God. Hold on. My cousins were telling me that there's this TikTok trend where people go into the school bathrooms and vandalize them to the point where they rip the sinks off the wall and, like, rip the soap dispensers off the wall. And apparently, the school where they're going, everyone has to be chaperoned in order to use the bathroom now because people had destroyed all
0: the bathrooms. Have you heard about this? I have not heard about that, but it does not surprise me at all. Let me take this opportunity to just voice some grave concerns I have about this next generation coming up. <laughs> they are... No, oh my gosh, my
2: <laughs> It was interesting getting back in touch with the youth over the weekend. But actually, I have another somewhat lighter topic to discuss before we dive into politics. So 538 conducted something of a poll. Basically, we had an internal disagreement in the newsroom about when the seasons begin. Mainly in September of this year, no one could agree on when fall began, and people had a variety of somewhat strong opinions about it. So our colleagues Kaylee Rogers and Jasmine Matani decided to poll 538 readers to see what they thought about when the seasons start. And so I'm not going to ask whether this is a good use or bad use of polling, because obviously it's a great use of polling, but the poll itself is unscientific. So in that sense, it's not really a use of polling. Readers have the chance to opt in. And of course, as we all know, in order to have a good, solid scientific poll, it needs to be a random sample. And that is not what this is. However, now that we're in this new transition period from one season to the next, or maybe that's an open question, we'll have to see what you guys think. I want to see if your perceptions of the seasons match up with our readers. So, Amelia, let's begin with you. And because this is the season that we're in, when do you think winter begins?
1: So... My view on this, and I haven't looked at the poll, but I don't think this was one of the options they gave, but it's very colored by living in Chicago for many years where sometimes you don't get a spring at all. Sometimes fall is two weeks long. So for me saying that fall begins on September 1st or something like that, I think that's silly. I think it's entirely temperature-based. And I would say that winter begins when you have had three consecutive nights of below freezing temperatures.
2: Okay, very specific. Sarah, what do you think? I
3: missed this internal debate at 538 because I feel like there's one clear answer here and it's the equinoxes and solstices. I'm sorry, like that is what happens whether you're in the Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere. So December 21st, Galen, that is when winter will begin this year.
2: Okay,
0: I love that. You got to live by a code. Micah, when do you think winter begins? Before I answer, let me just say that the reason this is such a great question is it tells you so much about someone. That Sarah wants a fixed, exact benchmark from which to build her life off of, I think is is very in character with Sarah. And that Amelia is willy-nilly... (laughs) <laughs> Whatever happens to come. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> that, that doesn't really match your personality, Amelia.
1: Yeah, I know me, notoriously easygoing person. No, I, I <laughs> well, do also
3: think that. three nights in a row—that's very orderly of below, you know, freezing temperatures. So
0: that's true. That's a great point.
1: Yeah, it's not a single night. Got to be three nights. Three
3: nights. It's a trend.
0: I think the main divide here is: Do you want an unchanging benchmark like Sarah's, or do you want something that's based on your experience, like Amelia's? Amelia makes a great point that from that changing experience, you can then extract a, a series of rules. Anyway, with that long, pointless intro that I just gave to my own answer. Mm-hmm. Diatribe. Diatribe. I definitely <laughs> fall in the, there's no point going off the solstices or anything like that. Like, who cares about the solstice? What role does it serve? Huge. It's all about
3: the sunlight, man. Shortest day, longest day, equinox. The sunlight is a good point.
1: Yeah. The darkness is a good point. I'll say I'm with Sarah on that.
0: Okay, Micah, spit it out. I think winter (laughs) begins when you take out your winter jacket to wear.
2: Wow. Okay. So, like, if you live in Los Angeles, winter never begins? Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you live in L.A., if you live in a place where it's warm year-round, you don't have a winter.
1: I don't know. I think people who live in cold climates, they just pull out their puffer coat for like 50 degrees. Like my sister-in-law lives in Brazil. And when she comes to visit, she came and visited Indiana in May. And I was like, it's wonderful. It's spring. How beautiful. And she was shivering in her puffer coat. But I think the question is, Micah, how many jackets do you have? And which jacket is it? Is it like the real jacket or is it the first jacket?
0: The real jacket. So I do have a intermediary jacket. Uh, that I pull out, you know, when it, when it goes into the 50s, let's say. And is that when fall begins? That's the fall jacket. Then there's a winter <laughs> jacket. The fall jacket comes back out for spring. I also have a separate spring jacket. And then you don't wear a jacket in the summer. Oh,
3: so it's really a sartorial choice for you. That's interesting.
1: I know. What does this say about Micah, Sarah?
0: So fashion forward. <laughs>
1: fashion forward, yes, Kayla. <laughs> Micah, the clothes of horse of the 538 office.
0: The Seasons of Fashion by Micah Cohen. Well, here's the thing. It's like, why do the seasons matter? Why do we care about the seasons? It's because it affects what kind of choices we make and how we live our day-to-day lives, mostly about clothing. So that's my pushback to the sunlight argument is like, it's going to get dark at that time, whether we call it fall or winter. That's a
2: lot of Northeast bias, right? Like we truly have all four seasons in the Northeast, but a lot of the country doesn't really have all four seasons, or at least not the way that we do. But there are still like cultural signifiers of the seasons that even people in, I don't know, Southern California or South Florida participate in. All right, Galen, what do you think? I guess after accusing Micah of Northeast bias, I am going to probably engage in some myself. I think the seasons begin on the first of the month that is the most obviously a part of that season. So winter begins on December 1st, spring begins March 1st, summer begins June 1st, and fall begins September 1st. And so you have four seasons. Each season is three months long. So winter is December, January, February. Spring is March, April, May. Summer is June, July, August. And fall is September, October, November. Got to keep it simple.
1: Galen, you've lived in the upper Midwest, right? I don't know how you can say that spring begins on March 1st when, like, some years spring begins on June 1st.
2: Yeah, but that's going back to what the actual temperature feels like. I think it's also a mood, right? Once you're in March, you know that the bulk of the kind of harshest parts of winter are behind you. Like, even in Madison, Wisconsin, there's going to be a day in March that is like at least 35 degrees, and that's gonna feel like spring.
1: Yeah, but then it's like you have the 35 degree day, and then it snows like five inches the next day, and then you just feel like your soul has been crushed.
2: And the
3: dates you threw out, Galen, they're very close to, you'll guess, the solstice and equinox, which is clearly why that system is superior.
2: Ish, but off by a month. If spring begins March 21st versus March 1st, it is very close, but I think, in terms of culture and holidays, and just kind of making sense of the world, providing a structure for myself, that's how I think about the seasons.
0: Galen, I think your answer is is pretty stupid. I think if you're going to go with the set dates like that, you go with the, you go with Sarah's answer. You go with the solstices. Now, to your other accusation of East Coast bias, I am absolutely biased towards defining the seasons by places that have all four seasons. Yes, that is my bias. For places that don't have all four seasons, they don't get as much of a say in how we define the seasons. I feel like that's a fair stance to take.
3: But again, we only have the seasons, right, because like the Earth tilted on its axis. So really only the equator and like regions that fall in there don't really have seasons, right? Otherwise, it's just the inverse. So again, the equinoxes and the solstices, that's kind of unifying things, right, because it's about sunlight.
2: Sarah, that is kind of fair because you think about whose calendar do we use? Is it like the Roman calendar? They didn't have a kind of New England fall in Rome or whatever 2000 years ago, but they still had observed holidays that were associated with the equinoxes and solstice and so on and so forth. So I feel like if I have to choose between Micah and Sarah's vision for seasons, I'm going
0: with Sarah's. There you go. Yeah. I think you guys are trying to be too scientific about this. Seasons are about feelings. Seasons are about family. Seasons are about emotions. It's not about science, guys.
3: It's about the earth tilting.
0: The facts don't <laughs> care about your feelings, Micah. Um, wait, okay, hold on. We got
2: so carried away, I forgot that we were going to share the results of this poll. So, <laughs> Who
1: cares what anyone else thinks? We're the poll. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, so we gave people several ways of answering this question. One was multiple choice for certain signifiers. So, for example, 23% of respondents said that winter starts on Black Friday. 21% said it starts on the winter solstice. 12% said it starts when the first snow sticks to the ground. Another 12% said when the first snow falls. 8% said when people start putting up holiday lights. And 24% said other. But when we allowed people to just pick a day on a calendar for when all of the four seasons start, the most commonly picked days were the first of the month, basically what I said. So March 1st is when spring (laughs) begins. June 1st is when summer begins.
1: But my question is, were the solstices and the equinoxes marked on the calendar? Because also, don't they move sometimes? So like if you said March 20th was the first day of spring, I think it's not always March 20th. So maybe we just have very savvy readers who understood that picking that date on the calendar would be incorrect.
2: The solstices and equinoxes did get a decent amount of play on that calendar. But actually, the most overwhelming majority or agreement was on when summer begins. 40% of respondents said the day after Memorial Day. So that plays into Micah's argument about
0: culture and emotion. Look, we don't need names for the seasons except for culture and emotion, right? If it was all just about daylight and temperature, then you would just look at the schedule of sunrise and sunset and you would look at the temperature forecast and you wouldn't need to put a name to it.
1: But, Micah, your argument is entirely about temperature.
0: <laughs> no, no, no.
1: <laughs> it's about putting your, when you put your coat on.
0: My, it's my, entirely
1: about temperature.
0: My argument is a derivative of temperature. But you'll notice, Amelia, that <laughs> for everybody, their threshold for when it gets cold enough to whip out that winter coat is different. So everybody gets their own winter. That's really the stance I'm taking. If I ever run for president... Everybody gets their own winter. Everybody gets their own summer. That's what this country was built on. Oh. Micah, nothing's free. Who's going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's true. Who's going to pay for those coats, Micah?
0: <laughs> we'll tax the rich. Um,
2: okay, so there were lots of responses. This was a fun poll. People should go over to 538.com and check out all of the different responses we got for all the different seasons. The article is titled, Our Very Unscientific Poll on When Each Season Starts. So... Go check it out. Let's move on and talk about some more serious scientific polling about 2024. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. As I mentioned at the top, pollsters are increasingly turning their attention to 2024 with one specific question in mind. Do voters want a rematch between Biden and Trump? Polls show that solid majorities of Americans overall in the range of 60 to 70% actually don't want either President Biden or former President Trump to run in 2024. But of course, presidential nominations are party affairs, and majorities of Republicans, ranging from 60 to 80%, depending on the poll, want Trump to run again. There's been less polling about whether Democrats want Biden to run again, but in a recent Suffolk University poll, 62% of Democrats said they did want him to run in 2024. First and foremost, our favorite question, Sarah, is this a good or bad use of polling? In other words, you know, how much weight should we give to polling this far out from 2024?
3: It's bad.
0: Ooh. To be clear,
3: we have looked at early primary polling for a presidential election. We do that a year out. And we have found that those polls are predictive. They do give you a sense of who the frontrunner could be and what their probability is of winning the nomination. But at this point, we're just too early in the process. There was this tweet from friend of the site, Ariel Levy, in July that really stood out to me. She was running through a poll done three years out of the 2016 GOP primary. Let me read you the top three, and let me know if you can see who's missing. Chris Christie at 15%, Paul Ryan at 13%, and Marco Rubio at 12%. Trump's not even on that list. And Chris Christie and actually all three of them, what? They didn't make it past the first primary, first two. It's just like, what? what is the value there? So I think it's way too early for some of this. I understand though Trump looms larger than ever. And I think that's part of where the obsession comes from, particularly for this cycle. But it is like reading tea leaves and we lose sight of that.
2: And I just want to clarify, Sarah, do you think it's a bad use of polling on both accounts, both when applied to the Republican primary and when applied to whether or not People want Biden to run for re-election?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful we'll talk about that latter point here a bit more. But the way I read a lot of support or lack of support for Biden seeking the presidency again is where his current approval rating is. The fact that he's kind of not doing that well among Democrats, I think, speaks to the larger picture of, like, he's not doing that well among Americans nationally.
2: Micah and Amelia, I want to hear whether or not you agree. Is this a bad use of polling?
1: I think it's a bad use of polling and a bad use of emotional energy, personally. I just think, like, we've got one election in a year, guys. Like, let's focus on that. Like, I think this is out of a desire to talk about Trump and to try to figure out where Trump is in the way that people are thinking about the Republican Party. How much control does he have over the Republican Party? How much influence will he have over the party? You know, just like a question that's, that's actually quite relevant for the midterms. So in that sense, knowing where Republican voters stand in terms of Trump is helpful for thinking about, okay, you know, so if Trump is endorsing people, Trump is throwing his weight behind various candidates in the midterms, what's that actually going to mean to people? So I guess it is kind of meaningful in that sense, but it's just also, guys, it's three years from now. Let's really cool our jets.
2: Although the primary is not really three years from now, but fair enough. Okay, Micah, do you also think this is a bad use of polling? We have consensus.
0: Not only is a bad use of polling on both counts, it, it's too early. It's what Amelia said. If you're interested in to what extent Trump has influence over the party, or kind of more importantly, to what extent the party has just become the party of Trump, regardless of what Trump does personally, look at the midterms. Look at what kind of candidates are running for Senate and House and in local races. Look at to what extent they are espousing Trump views and and Trump's kind of anti-democratic or norm-breaking tendencies. If you want to talk about 2024, then follow the kind of anti-democratic beat. What are mostly Republicans at the state level doing to change and alter the kind of mechanical levers of our democracy? But Don't just pull the general election. The other reason I think it's a bad use of polling is Trump is such a dominant figure within the Republican Party. I do think it's a fair bet to say that if he runs, if he runs, and that's an if, if he runs, he is a favorite to win the Republican nomination. But I think the world in which he doesn't win is one in which some new candidate emerges halfway out of nowhere, similar to the way Trump did, frankly, in 2015 and 2016, and like takes the party by storm, basically. So going back to that poll Sarah cited, you know, the eventual nominee there kind of wasn't even on people's radar. And I think that's most likely the scenario in which Trump does not win the nomination if he runs in 2024. It's someone who's not really on our radar right now.
3: And the one thing I'd add to that, too, is even if Republicans have a really successful midterm election, and there are a lot of indicators that suggest that they will do well here in the fall that doesn't mean they're they're going to do well in 2024. I mean, that's the whole thing with our politics in the U.S., right? It's like it's just a pendulum. It swings back and forth. So if Republicans do make really big gains in 2022, it doesn't mean that that brand of Republicanism will necessarily appeal to voters in the lead up to 2024. Now, maybe that's an overly generous read on my part. I think it further complicates, though, than the ability to look at 2024 polls now and derive any meaning for them for the actual presidential election.
2: I do want to be clear here. There is head-to-head general election 2024 polling being done. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the people who would be voting in the Republican primary and the people who would be voting in the Democratic primary at the start of the year, so basically in February or whatever, and whether or not Democrats want that person to be Biden and whether or not Republicans want that person to be Trump. I think that in general, people have been talking as if if Trump wants the nomination, it's his. And I think that doing polling to figure out whether or not that's the case is worthwhile. I mean, you fully don't even think it's worth asking Republican voters if they want Trump to run again, given the circumstances of he was a one-term president, he can run again, he seems quite popular.
0: So here's the problem. These polls, they don't mirror in the right way the way primaries are actually conducted. So in a primary, voters have to choose between let's say, Trump and candidate B and candidate C. These polls are just like, do you want Trump to run again? Trump is really popular in the party. So, of course, he's going to get majority support. They're not replicating kind of real world conditions. Mm. So it's why I think it's an especially bad use of polling is, again, if Trump runs and if he's beaten, it's going to take some doing, right? It's going to take kind of a charismatic candidate who comes in and some things go that person's way and they get a couple victories, right? And the same thing on Biden's side, putting these candidates up against this nameless, faceless opposition, I just think doesn't really tell us anything beyond what Sarah was saying, which is just that person's overall approval or favorability.
3: To your point, Galen, though, it is important to understand how voters feel about the candidates. I'm thinking about this story that Nathaniel wrote recently that was looking at, you know, polls here for 2024 and support among Republicans for Trump. And what we found in a Quinnipiac poll was in May, 66% of Republicans favored Trump running again, but then it had jumped to 78%. And so as Mike is saying, I don't think you want to overread that in the sense of it is still this empty field that he's running against. But the fact that his support is perhaps growing, or at the very least, it's not showing signs of waning, that is a story. And that is something I think we are supposed to report on and write on because that is significant. I think the trick of this all remains around what Amelia was saying at the outset is we're really just measuring and trying to gauge enthusiasm for Trump, his hold on the party. But polls like this will often then kind of be extracted as, well, if Trump ran, he would definitely win. And that I don't think you can really
1: claim from these polls.
2: Okay, yeah, I think that's a good point.
1: And I don't even know if the question of whether you want Trump to run is the best way to gauge that, because I found a Pew poll that was from early October that asked two questions. It asked just whether people want Trump to remain a major political figure and whether they want Trump to run again. And On the major political figure question, Pew had also found an increase, um, that there was a rise in the share of Republicans who want Trump to remain a major political figure, and it was up to 67% by the time this poll was taken. And the share of Republicans who said that they wanted Trump to run again in 2024 was lower. It was 44%. So that was also kind of telling for me that if you give people an option between Trump remains on the political scene, he's influential in some way, he's helped shaping the future of the party, they're more likely to gravitate toward that than actually wanting Trump on the ticket. So I think it's hard to even look at the questions about whether people want Trump to run again and distill from that exactly what role Republicans actually want Trump to have going forward.
2: When it comes to whether or not Trump will run for re-election, as we've made clear here, no one can tell you whether or not he would win that hypothetical primary But a lot of commentators, even politicians, for example, Adam Schiff was on this podcast and he said, you know, I think Trump's going to run for president again in 2024, and I think he's going to get the nomination, the Republican nomination. So so politicians are talking about it this way. Commentators oftentimes talk about Trump's rerun for the presidency as like almost inevitable. Should we be taking for granted that he's going to run for president again?
0: I don't think we should be taking it for granted. I do think we should be treating it as a likely possibility. I mean, look, based on all Trump's actions and everything he has said, either he's planning on running for president in 2024 or he's using the prospect of running for president to raise a boatload of money. But based on everything he has said and done through the lens of a a more typical politician, you would bet on them running for office. I think some people have asked the question of, well, is he just doing this to raise a lot of money? Which he has, he has raised a lot of money. And I think giving Trump's history, I think that's very possible. But I certainly think it's likely that he'll run again. Just think about everything we know about Trump. He likes the spotlight, he likes the attention. He liked being president from all appearances. So why wouldn't he run again? Also, he's convinced most of his party that he never lost. So, of course, he wants to run again.
1: I guess my feeling is there's no upside for him right now to saying that he's not going to run because that would just immediately make him seem irrelevant. So all of his incentives are to signal that he's running. And I think we're just we're just not going to know probably until, what, early 2023? I would take that with a big grain of salt because there's just no benefit to Trump to taking his hat out of the ring preemptively.
3: I do think though, that part of what we're seeing in terms of coverage is still a reaction in the media to how did we miss this in 2016? And so now Trump Mm, continues. It all
2: goes back to 2016. It all
3: does. (laughs) It all does. I'm I'm curious for the point where we finally sever the tie there. And it's not to say that I don't think we should take Trump's stated ambitions to run again seriously. We absolutely should. But it's not a foregone conclusion. And I think that's the coverage that grates at me, is we don't know necessarily that he is going to run again. And if he does, we don't know that that would be successful either.
0: It's so well said, and it's not a foregone conclusion, but we should cover the possibility of Trump running, and we should cover Trump's influence on the party. But to Sarah's point, the coverage that really just gets into silliness is, you know, you've seen articles that are like, we obtained a leaked Trump memo on the five states the Trump campaign in waiting is targeting in 2024, and here's their internal polling on how Trump would match up against Biden. Like, First of all, we have public polling. So why are you looking at internal polling? Second of all, we're freaking like years out. There's no reason we should be talking about battleground states yet. It's that kind of coverage that I think is really silly. For sure.
2: Well,
1: and it's also like that's the Trump campaign getting their name out, like trying to be relevant, trying to get people to say, "Ooh, is Trump going to to run or is he not? And he's also, you know, he has power over anyone else who might be thinking about running for president at that point, because unless you're, I don't know, like Chris Christie and and it seems pretty clear what you're what you're thinking, he would be a formidable opponent to go up again.
3: It is really challenging, though, because it would be a disservice to the public to not cover it at all, right? Like, this is a former president, disgraced, who has said that he plans to run again. But I think it goes back to this question of how to cover it, because some of it is, again, like the free publicity that he got in the rise to 2016 is being repeated now with the endless kind of speculation about whether he will or won't run again.
2: I want to move on and talk a little bit about how Democratic voters are thinking of the prospects of Biden running for re-election in 2024. But first.
1: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
3: People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories. Follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
2: In the Suffolk University poll that I mentioned, 60% of Democrats said that they want Biden to run again in 2024. Is that low for a first-term president standing with his own party? I think it's a little low.
1: I found some polling that the Pew Research Center had pulled together back in 2010 that was looking at various presidents' reelection bids about a year after they'd been elected. And I think it's actually pretty much in line with how the other presidents were being thought of maybe a little bit low. 65% of Republicans wanted Reagan to run again in 82. 72% wanted Bush to run again in 90. 61% of Democrats wanted Clinton to run again in 94. And 83% of Democrats wanted Obama to run again again.
2: In 2010. So pretty different from the very popular presidents.
1: (laughs) Yeah, pretty different from the very popular presidents, but it's not like it's historically low, you know, completely out of the realm of anything we've seen before. I mean, it looks, that number looks pretty similar to Clinton after his first two years.
0: But that's what I was going to point out is the polling that Pew put together was conducted more around the midterm, Mm -hmm. which might matter a little bit because I would think that partisan attitudes sharpen as an election approaches. The other thing, though, is, you know, some of those presidents, Clinton and then going back to Reagan, were president during times when when support from your own party was kind of less of a gimme. And so Mm -hmm. I think you see that a little bit, for example, in Obama's numbers in 2010, when he wasn't that popular overall. Remember, Democrats got quote unquote, shellacked in the 2010 midterms. But Obama still had mid-80 support among Democrats. So I do think Biden's number is is a little low. Now, the question is, does that matter? And that's what I'm less convinced of. Considering,
3: too, how low Biden's current overall approval rating is, I think the fact that he has 60 percent support among Democrats isn't necessarily that bad either, right? He still has over a year to kind of make that up. So I don't really know how much, I guess, to really
1: read into this at this point. This situation is a little different than others because there wasn't really a question that Obama wasn't going to run again. And I think there has always been this question in the back of people's minds, is Biden going to be a one-term president by choice? So I think that might be part of what we're seeing when we look at those numbers for Biden. People weren't asked about other possibilities, but they might be thinking in a very real way, Biden seems like he's really just going to be a one-term president, then he's going to have someone else who's going to run, and I have another person in mind I'd rather have.
0: This gets perfectly to, like, the does it matter, does it not matter argument. The argument, no, it doesn't matter, kind of goes back to when people are answering this question right now— Sarah made this point earlier. They're thinking about Biden's performance overall. They're thinking, has he kind of fulfilled the campaign pledges that I supported him because of they're not thinking, here are my choices for the 2024 Democratic nominee Biden person X. I don't think for the most part. And so in that way, I think the numbers really don't matter. Now, the argument for why they do matter, I think it kind of gets out what Amelia was saying, which is there is more of a question with Biden of Will he run again? He says he intends to. And so in that way, I almost wonder whether these numbers... I think there could kind of be, frankly, a self-fulfilling prophecy where Obama, for example, was really struggling around the midterms. As we said, the Democrats did really poorly, but there was never a question of of whether he was going to run again. And as the 2012 election approached, his approval rating... I don't know the exact numbers, but it basically recovered from like low 40s to high 40s, nearing 50 percent, basically just enough to win reelection. I wonder a little bit, because there's this question hanging over Biden of whether he will run again, whether there's going to be a lot of noise generated while Biden's in the low 40s that will frankly, make it harder for him to climb his way back into, let's say, the high 40s, where his re-election prospects would be closer to 50-50. I think that could happen. I think basically it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's totally speculative, but food for thought. I'm curious
2: about what you think of this poll. So an NPR Marist poll showed that 50% of Republicans think that their party has a better chance of winning if Trump is the nominee in 2024. However, only 36% of Democrats said that their party has a better chance of winning if Biden is the nominee in 2024. So the question I have is, are Democrats actually just thinking maybe they're not sure that they want Biden to run again because they don't really know that he can win because they question his standing? This is the perpetual crisis of the
1: Democrats. (laughs) It's like, what do I want and what do I think other people will do? And I don't know what to do. I saw that and I was just like, oh, my God, it's starting again. That's all I have to say. I mean, I'll say more later.
2: Because, like, Trump just lost, and his
0: standing with the Republican voters seems better. It's totally right, and it's so ironic because Biden basically won the Democratic nomination because Democrats thought, here's someone that other people will vote for. They turned out to be right about that. So the fact that now they're like, oh... I don't know if this person can win again. I think maybe they're right about that. <laughs> maybe they're right about that. And no, it's it's honestly one reason why I do think it could be a self-fulfilling prophecy because Democrats care about electability. And, and so if the powers that be, if the Democratic elites become convinced that Biden would be an underdog against Trump in 2024, what they do, it becomes a really interesting question, especially because it's not overkill to say democracy is on the line but then the question is who who else are they going to run
3: i'm a little skeptical of how much to read into this okay Because for starters, one thing we've seen when presidents leave office is they kind of benefit from rose-colored glasses as people look back. I think that's part of what's happening with Trump, particularly among members of his own party. I think that's at play. I think Republicans are also perhaps a little bit more jazzed right now about voting in general versus Democrats, and therefore might have stronger thoughts. At least we see enthusiasm is stronger among Republicans for the midterm than Democrats. I think that might apply here for 2024 at this point. The second part of that is that Biden always led in the early primary polls, but it wasn't like this sizable, huge, enthusiastic lead, right? It was like 36%, which was enough to put him on a track to win the nomination, but not necessarily have this huge swath of support in the party. And so I think particularly given where his approval rating is now, that's where I think this poll is reflecting versus maybe an overarching statement on his presidency, because this wasn't asked in that poll, but we're looking right now at Harris's approval numbers. Like they're roughly in line with what Biden's would be. Like, I'm not sure Another Democrat in this position would necessarily get a better response from Democrats at this point is what I'm trying to say.
0: Sarah just completely demolished my argument. She's absolutely right. The foundational environment in which these polls are being asked is one in which Democrats hold political power for the most part. They control the White House, both chambers of Congress, although barely. Public opinion has moved against them. And the energy is on the Republican side. When all these questions are actually going to be determined will be after the midterms. And most likely after the midterms, that picture will look very different. So Sarah is totally right. I'll save one little bit of my argument, which is just that this nagging question of whether Biden is going to run again, I think does throw some weird dynamics into the works that usually aren't there. Mm -hmm. So you won, Sarah. I concede. I can, this is, I I think the first time I've conceded on a podcast.
1: Wow, Wow. Sarah, round of
2: applause. (laughs) Mark it on
0: your calendar, Sarah. Yeah,
1: seriously. (laughs) No, I,
3: I, I think that's smart, though. That is a good point that, I mean, Biden even said, it was towards the end of the campaign in the lead up to 2020, but that he saw himself as a transitional candidate. I just wonder at this point, given the other factors, how much people are thinking
1: about that now. I've been thinking about that, Sarah, because I was actually at that event. It was a campaign rally in Detroit right before the Michigan primary. And it may have been the last crowd I was in. Maybe that's why I remember it so clearly. But Biden was, he was like up on the stage and he was with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. And he said something like, I'm a bridge to the next generation. And That's been the thing that everyone has interpreted as Biden signaling, I'm going to be a one-term president by choice. I mean, that's how I took it at the time. That's how I remember everyone else reacting. But I was doing a little bit of searching around this morning, and I don't think
2: he really said that anywhere else. He never said it straight up. However, his team floated it in early 2019 of like, would the field clear or something like that if Biden... Promised to be a one term president. I think it was floated and basically didn't catch on. People didn't say, like, oh, yeah, we'll defer to you, Biden, if you promise to only be president for a term or whatever. But I think otherwise, like, you can't really say that you're going to be a one term president. Otherwise, you're a lame duck as soon as you get in office. So he'd never say it straight up.
1: Yeah. Well and also if he's like Trump right now I mean he has no incentive right now also to say I'm not going to run for re-election again because then no one has to take him seriously but I do wonder you know like the sense that it might he might very plausibly step aside for a younger candidate and try to boost them in 2024 and not run himself I wonder how much that was other people kind of seeing this moment and there had already been a kind of feeling that you know Biden's older, he's not necessarily you know he's kind of like a consensus candidate. Maybe everyone will feel better about him if he's just a one-term president, and then you know a younger person comes in. I just wonder how much of that was kind of like other people deciding that that was what Biden was saying, rather than Biden intentionally, or maybe maybe he was he was intentionally signaling it because he knew it would play well at the time. I don't know if he meant for us to still be talking about that a year and a half later.
2: Here's a political article from December of 2019, so two years ago. It's titled, Biden Signals to AIDS That He Would Serve Only a Single Term. Former Vice President Joe Biden's top advisors and prominent Democrats outside the Biden campaign have recently revived a long-running debate about whether Biden should publicly pledge to serve only one term, with Biden himself signaling to AIDS that he would serve only a single term. This conversation has been primed for a good amount of time during the 2020
0: primary campaign. The Biden campaign had a lot of incentives, I think, to sort of mollify one concerns about his age. And two, I think there were some blocks within the Democratic electorate that wanted to vote for someone newer and and more exciting and whatever, right? And so I think there were some incentives on the Biden campaign's part to maybe engender some of that conversation around one term, one term without committing to it. I mean, as you pointed out, Amelia, he never says one term in that transitional remark. You can have an eight-year transition. It's just a longer transition. But I don't know. The fact that we're even talking about it it is indicative of something. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I mean, we haven't talked about his age. I mean, that feels important. He was already historically old candidate and president. And we're talking about him running for reelection when he's 82, serving until he's 86. You know, I mean, obviously it's up to Biden what he thinks he can handle in terms of stamina. It's an incredibly draining job and running for president is incredibly draining and he may still be up for it. But I have to believe that to the extent that people were thinking about those concerns in 2020, all the more so when he's actually in his 80s and running for re-election in 2024.
0: Totally agree. And, and by the way, that's putting aside the, like, far-right, crazy conspiracy theories about... About, about whether or not he's actually president. right. <laughs> Right,
1: right. That's just, it's just historic. Like he he would be older by far than any other president.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: And I think also sort of like conceptually, there's something different between running when you're 78 and running when you're 82. Like that just feels like a bigger, it's only four years, but it feels like a bigger conceptual leap to go into your 80s. All
2: right. Well, I am sure that this is a conversation that we're going to come back to perhaps when we have more data, when it's more predictable, when we're closer to the actual events that we're talking about. But for now, thank you for joining me, Amelia, Micah, and Sarah.
3: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hi.
2: My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room, Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.